This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Tonight, conflicting timeline. Hamas breaks the truce and Israel fights back. Will Biden force Israel to halt its campaign before wiping out the terrorists? Plus, American hostages left behind. New reporting on the living hell they endure underground in Gaza. White lung. There's a global concern that there could be another pandemic. The mystery illness affecting children spreads from China to the United States. Why so-called experts defend China while admitting they know nothing about the disease. Phones away. A murder caught on tape by students who do nothing to stop the fight. How one school has banned phones and the results are amazing. The debate we want, Haley versus Harris. And I go head to head with Trump in my home state of South Carolina and we take it. It is time for us to do what we have been doing and that time is every day. The debate we got. Newsom versus DeSantis. Neither of us will be the nominee for our party. But Ron DeSantis takes the stage again next week against the Republican field. Can he fix the smile problem? Breaking news as it is about 2 a.m. as we take a live look here over the Gaza Strip. Hamas broke the truce earlier today and Israel says they will now finish the job. As night fell, Israel ramped up its campaign in Gaza with heavy bombing. The IDF says they're targeting Hamas command centers, tunnels, and mortar launching squads. The blasts are a continuation of the intense fighting that took place today on the ground. Israeli military officials say they've taken out a number of terror cells, particularly in the area of Khan Yunus. We're going to map that out for you in just a minute. Welcome to the fairest show on television. First this Friday night, conflicting timelines. The war has now restarted. The Biden administration and Prime Minister Netanyahu are heading towards a conflict of their own, a showdown of their own, if you will. Israel says it will destroy Hamas no matter how long it takes. And Mr. Biden, Secretary of State, just gave the harshest warning yet to his Israeli counterparts that American support may not last that long. From the Times of Israel quoting a leaked transcript of Antony Blinken's meeting with the Israeli War Cabinet, quote, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, the entire Israeli society is united behind the goal of dismantling Hamas, even if it takes months. Blinken, I don't think you have the credit for that. 
So this translation would have been from English to Hebrew back to English. So take it a little bit with a grain of salt. Credit could mean that much time, that much goodwill, or even that much credit with the United States. That is a major problem for the Israelis. And Blinken publicly lectured Israel about civilian casualties in Gaza. Uh, we support Israel and uh, its efforts to make sure that October 7th never happens again. Uh, we've also been very clear about um, the imperative of uh, doing that in a way that puts a premium on protecting civilians. All right, so to be clear, that's far more than the United States ever did in Afghanistan, Iraq, or in the war against ISIS. But Israel knows that it has a PR problem. And we're going to put this map up for you here uh, in the board. This is the map that the IDF released. It splits Gaza here. This is the Gaza Strip, right, into about 100 different zones. Uh, and the idea is, is that they are going to be able to update Palestinians, uh, non-combatants, in real time of which zones they are going to be operating in. And you can see uh, this would be Khan Yunus. Up here would be Gaza City, where already uh, Israelis have cut the Gaza Strip here north uh, to south. The Israelis are saying this is how targeted our airstrikes and clearing operations will be. The Israelis have an advantage here because while there was a pause, they still kept this north-south uh, divide here. So the Israelis have cut it here. And remember, uh, Hamas's strongholds are here and here, Khan Yunus, and then up in Gaza City. And then you had the Israeli humanitarian corridors that they had made to allow people to move south there. IDF communicates evacuation notices now also uh, via text messages, but with pamphlets as well. We'll show you that uh, coming down. You can see this is the sky over Gaza. Hundreds of thousands of pamphlets have flown down. Interestingly enough, I talked to some good friends in Israel who were having Shabbat dinner Israelis here uh, just on the other side of the Gaza border. They said there was a number of leaflets that had flown uh, into their kibbutz uh, where they grow wine grapes. Uh, so they were reading the very same pamphlets uh, that they were reading in Gaza. You can see the QR code and then in Arabic telling people uh, where to go south. This is the closer look at exactly what they look like. Messages include uh, details on where to, go, where to go for safety and then also a link to the maps. Now we're going to look at the, actually Khan Yunus. And this is important here. This is the second of the two Hamas strongholds. The Hamas stronghold is here. Uh, down into the city center. Uh, you've got humanitarian corridors that have been set up uh, just south of Khan Yunus here and here, over there and over there. That's where hundreds of thousands of people from the north have flooded down. Uh, these are the cities right now uh, here uh, that the Israelis are starting to work their way into, uh, and they're beginning to encircle Khan Yunus the exact same way the Israeli military encircled Gaza City. Uh, earlier uh, yesterday, we spoke to a father of an Israeli soldier who had been killed in the battle uh, for Gaza City, uh, talking about the pressure now that is being put on the Israelis by the United States. There's American pressure on uh, the prime minister, on our government, on our country to uh, not persist in the destruction of Hamas. And I believe that that's an absence of moral clarity. All right. For whatever Mr. Biden lacks in moral clarity, he has in political clarity. 
Biden's political team now realizes he faces an existential political threat because of the Democratic Party's divide on Israel, the pro-Hamas wing and the pro-Israel wing. American financial aid and ammunition delivery gives Team Biden extraordinarily leverage. Even Mr. Biden's favorite morning show is demanding he condition military aid now on Israel's actions. The United States has the right to say, if we're going to continue propping up your government, if you don't have faith in this guy who knew this was coming a year away, we need a better partner. And Benjamin Netanyahu is not that partner. Hmm. Netanyahu is, as if not more, of a polarizing figure in Israel than Trump or Biden are in America. But the pro-Israel lobby in the United States will go nuts if Biden tries to condition aid or Israeli military restraint, tries to dictate Israeli military restraint. There is a battle coming. Ambassador John Bolton is here, former assistant to the president for national security affairs, also former ambassador to the United Nations. Good to see you, sir. Thank you. Um, What is next now in this showdown between uh, the American administration and the Israeli military? Well, I think with the initial pause now behind us, uh, I think Israel's uh, best uh, judgment here is simply to proceed uh, militarily to achieve the objective it says it wants, which is the elimination of Hamas. I think the second guessing by the Biden administration, the efforts to prolong the pause, to turn it into a full ceasefire, are objectively pro-Hamas because it denies Israel the self-defense right it has to eliminate the terrorist threat. I think that's a kind of terrorist veto. And I think when you, when you take the position that Israel can defend itself, it just can't defend itself very well, uh, you're setting up a, 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 an impossible uh, task for the Israelis unless they just continue to pursue this on their own. You and I have spent a lot of time together in Jerusalem. Uh, You've spent a lot of time with Prime Minister Netanyahu, certainly more than I have. But I can't imagine him taking kindly to this. My only question for you, is there a chance we're misreading this, to be fair, um, that the Biden administration is having to say this because they're in a political pickle and they're they're unable to have moral clarity, even though uh, sometimes that's that's the much stronger position. And at the same time, they're telling the Israelis, look, you know, send, send, send text messages and put out leaflets, but go do what you need to do. No, I, look, I think the administration is weak. I think it's weak on Ukraine, it's weak on China, uh, it's weak on Iran, it's weak on North Korea, and, it, and it's weak on the terrorist threat that Israel faces. Uh, Biden's rhetorical support initially was quite strong, but when he put his arm around Netanyahu, he kept his arm around Netanyahu, and, and they really are trying to constrain what Israel is doing. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's for political reasons. I think you've got an important point there. I think the administration is scared to death of the left wing of the Democratic Party. But it's also because Biden internationally wants to have it both ways, saying he favors self-defense, just not very much of it. That's the terrorist veto. Look, and the problem, right, is when you want to have it both ways, especially on an issue of good versus evil or right versus wrong, you don't really have it either way because you don't get the support of the pro-Hamas wing of the Democratic Party and you also don't get the support of the pro-Israel types. I I think this is pretty interesting. Um, This is from Hamas uh, today. This is one of the Hamas spokespeople was interviewed by CBS about uh, the hostages themselves. Right now, about 138 or so uh, still being held, including Americans in Gaza. 
how many hostages do you have left in your hands that are still alive? I don't know. You don't know? The number is not so important. Is it time, as sad as this might be to say, to resign ourselves that it was great to get the hostages out that came out, uh, but that can no longer be the focus? Well, I think there's clearly a tension between Israel's two objectives, eliminate Hamas and get the hostages out. Here's an interesting statistic. During the first six weeks of conflict when Israel was pounding Hamas in the north and some in the south, how many hostages did Hamas kill? I think the answer to that is we're not aware of anybody they killed. And there's a reason for that. A dead hostage isn't any good to Hamas. So if, they, if, we're, if we don't know that they've killed any in the first six weeks, why do we think they're suddenly going to start killing them if Israel resumes its military operations? Mm. I think that's bluff. But I think there's another point, too. I think they've got more than 140 hostages. They've already released a lot of other nationals people hadn't honestly paid any attention to, Thailand and other countries. I suspect there are more there. And, and here's the thing that really worries me. When you're getting three Palestinian prisoners released for every hostage you turn, every kidnap victim you turn back to Israel, you know, there's a business plan there to get more Israeli hostages, and that is not good news for the Israeli people. Yeah, it's, it's not. Um, and look, Hamas has said they're going to keep doing this every time they, they get an opportunity. Mr. Ambassador, um, welcome back to the program. We've missed you. It's great to see you, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we invite you to sign up for War Notes. It gives you a free look at the show every day at 4 p.m. You go to warnotes.com and subscribe for free. The notes started as our internal email discussion about the most important events of the day. It's literally how we put the show together every day, and you get to be a part of it. You can respond to the email with your thoughts or join us on social media at Leland Vittert on Instagram or Twitter, warnotes.com, and subscribe for free. You would think we would have learned from the pandemic on who to trust when it comes to the origins of mysterious viruses that are spreading like wildfire. But no, we have not. Pediatricians in D.C., Massachusetts, and Ohio all report massive outbreaks of white lung pneumonia in kids. The first reports of overrun hospitals came from China. But experts say not to worry. Don't worry. We don't know anything about this, but don't worry. And certainly don't blame China. We do not believe this is a new or novel pathogen. We believe this is all existing. Okay, so that was testimony today. The virus has already hit Denmark, Netherlands, Sweden, Switzerland, and others. And they say this is nothing so far that they have anything to be able to learn about. Of course, when COVID spread from China to Italy and then to America, China lied through it all. With us now, somebody who was on the front lines of that, Dr. Brett Gerard, ICU pediatrician, ran a children's hospital, sits on the board of the American Academy of Pediatrics, also author of the book, Memoir of a Pandemic, Fighting COVID from the Front Lines to the White House. It's good to see you, as always, sir. We appreciate it. Um, uh, am I right to sort of have a really upsetting case of deja vu all of a sudden? Well, I think we all need to be skeptical of whatever comes out of the Chinese Communist Party, because we know they hid the COVID outbreak. Uh, they lied about its transmission patterns, and they sent tens of thousands of Chinese around the world while they shut down their own uh, society. So we should be skeptical. Now, that being said, 
Um, this does look like this is an upsurge of typical viruses and bacteria that occur in children uh, during this type of the, uh, this time of the winter. Probably made enormously worse in China and somewhat worse here, but enormously worse in China because of their lockdowns. These children have not experienced normal viruses to build up their immunity and get a little bit here and a little bit there. So they're getting whammy by the typical kinds of viruses that hit us every winter, but are astronomically increased. We do so know in we, Ohio for sure. Go ahead. We do know in Ohio no, for sure. It, it seems like COVID is to blame uh, in a weird way. Therefore, the Chinese are to blame. But it's because of what happened during COVID. Is that sort of what I have? Well, that's the good hypothesis that most people have is that, you know, the lockdowns cause tremendous, you know, problems in our children's. We know that with their learning and social welfare, but it also kept them, you know, in a bubble for three years. Hmm. So they couldn't experience the normal kinds of viruses and bacteria and get them at a younger age sometimes when they have mom's protection, like when they're being breastfed. Um, so now they're getting whammy because of those lockdowns. We do know in Ohio that this white lung is really pneumonia and it's caused because we know what's going on here by typical viruses like RSV, influenza, um, and, and some by bacteria. That doesn't make it any less mm. scary. It looks like the things that we as pediatricians, you know, treat tens of thousands of times during the winter. It might be a little worse here because of the lockdowns here. You know, we're just going to have yeah. to look in retrospect yeah, and see sense. that. But but clearly we had a bad year last year and it looks like it's a bad year this year. It's, it's amazing to hear that the Chinese say stuff and then the World Health Organization parrot it once again, just like they did during COVID. I know you had to deal with that uh, during your time at the White House, sir. It's good to see you. Thank you. We appreciate the perspective. Uh, coming up next, Ron DeSantis does a dress rehearsal for News Nation's debate. Can you get rid of the creepy smile? and awkward body language before Wednesday. And who would win the debate we really want to see? Nikki Haley versus Kamala Harris. Well, it could come to a TV screen near you. When are you going to drop out and at least give Nikki Haley a shot to take down Donald Trump in this nomination? She laid you out. You're a walking hypocrite. What's that sound? That's the sound of downy, unstoppable scent beads going into your washing machine and giving your clothes freshness that lasts all day long. There it is again. It's like music to your ears or more like music to your nose. That freshness is irresistible. Let's get a downy, unstoppable bottle shake. And now a sniff solo. Nice. Get six times longer lasting freshness plus odor protection with downy, unstoppable in-wash scent beads. Tis the season for chicken fingers at Raisin Cane's. Warm up with hand-battered, cooked-to-order chicken fingers, crispy, crinkle-cut fries, garlicky, buttered Texas toast, and the real source of holiday magic, cane sauce. And while you're treating yourself, don't forget to treat everyone on your list to Cane's gift cards and New York City-inspired plush puppies that benefit pet organizations. Happy holidays from Raisin Cane's Chicken Fingers. One love. <laughs> Hello there, this is Nat King Cole wishing you all a happy and a Merry Christmas. The joy of living is in the giving. So let's give lots of toys for tots. 
Toys, toys, toys for tots Some have too many Some haven't any If those who have give those who haven't Oh, what a Christmas day The Marine Reserve will help you Will help you fill your sleigh With lots and lots of toys for tots So give a little toy today Since 1947, the United States Marine Corps has been helping Santa fill his sleigh Making happier holidays for deserving children right in your community Go to toysfortots.org and learn how you can make a difference. Thanks for listening to News Nation on the go. I'm Ashley Banfield. Join me weeknights, 10 Eastern, on America's fastest growing news channel. Truck drivers, if you're stuck on a railroad crossing, don't just sit there. It takes a freight train more than a mile to stop, even in an emergency. So by the time you hear this, it could be too late to save your truck and maybe your license or your life. Instead, immediately get out of your truck, away from the tracks, and call the number on the emergency sign at the crossing. That gives the railroad a chance to stop trains before they get to you. Always call the emergency number. It could save your truck, your license, and your life. Go to OLI.org for info. This is McGruff the Crime Dog, and I need you to help me take a bite out of crime. Counterfeit products are popping up everywhere. If you think buying them is harmless, think again. Counterfeits are usually made with hazardous and even lethal ingredients that could harm you and others. And the money you paid, it goes right into the hands of criminals. Remember, if you don't know where the products came from, how could you know where the money goes? You're smart. Buy smart. Go for real. Learn more at McGruffPSA.org. This message is brought to you by the United States Patent and Trademark Office and the National Crime Prevention Council. Ew. Gotta get rid of this old Backstreet Boys t-shirt. Tell me why. Because it stinks, boys. Tell me why. I've washed it so many times, but the odor won't come out. Tell me why. No, you tell me why I can't get rid of this odor. Have you tried Downy Rinse and Refresh? It doesn't just cover up odors. It helps remove them. Wow, it worked, guys. Yeah. Downy Rinse and Refresh removes more odor in one wash than the leading value detergent in three washes. Find it wherever you buy laundry products. For everyone from players to parents, football offers unlimited growth with even more to learn. Visit futureforfootball.com to get ahead of the game. Find out where to play, what equipment to use, and get the latest from leagues around the country, including pro tips and parental info from the experts. These resources make it easier than ever to create your plan and make your play. profound differences tonight and i look forward to engaging them but there's one thing in closing that we have in common is neither of us will be the nominee for our party in 2024 it's gavin newsom in his debate last night with ron desantis florida versus california red versus blue joining us now body language expert patty wood nice to see you as always great to be what you make i don't know if this was the most important thing, but I kept seeing as Newsom was body slamming Ron DeSantis, DeSantis kept sort of like looking down and was like, okay, okay, should I smile? What do I do? Oh, I'm going to smile at you now. Right. Um, and the problem is DeSantis um, normally has very, doesn't smile. He ha- He's on the dispersonality inventory, a critiquer, which means he has a subtle internal smile, closed mouth, very little up arching. So they've told him, you got to smile, and so he's putting enormous effort into it, overextending, but he can't keep it on his face because it's not how he's truly feeling. 
So it looks plastered on. Yeah. That, that would be the smile. What did you make of when Newsom is going after him? He's looking down and writing. There was no sort of like that, that glare, like, all right, buddy, I'm coming for you. It was this very, yeah. He just couldn't take it. And what I saw several times when he was being attacked very elegantly by Newsom is that he would try to smile and then he would do what's called a collapse, meaning the head comes down, the shoulders come down, and there's an arching in to cover up and protect. Sometimes it was very brief. Sometimes it was very extended. But he couldn't hide that emotional state of that attack. Yeah, no, it didn't. It didn't seem like he could take a punch or wanted to sort of be there. There were some scripted moments. Clearly, both guys had planned out their their attacks. Uh, one of them was when Ron DeSantis started reading um, from a gender queer book uh, that he brought that he said was available uh, to students in California. Take a look. I actually have something that I brought that some parents have objected to. So this is a book that's in some of the schools in California. Florida, this is not consistent with our standards, called Gender Queer. I, it's, some of it's blacked out. You would not probably be able to put this on air. This is pornography. It's cartoons. It's aimed at children. Uh, and it's wrongs. Had to love the control room with Fox uh, cutting away from the tight shot when that <laughs> happened. It, it was a shocking moment, but ironically, yeah. it was one of his best moments because he's a normally serious person and he likes to be able to be angry about things. So his messaging and his emotional state match. So he came off really well when he delivered that. He does good with props. He does well with props. Yeah, when he has something to show and sort of to channel that at, uh, it's interesting, right. sort of the, the styles of the two guys. Uh, when Newsom was landing that that initial blow about the uh, you, neither of us will be the nominee, he practiced it, but it was landed, um, I thought, very well. Let's now watch how Newsom uh, takes a punch of his own. This is Ron DeSantis uh, talking about Gavin Newsom's father-in-law. So I was talking to a fella who had made the move from California uh, to Florida, and he was telling me that Florida is much better governed, uh, safer, better budget, uh, lower taxes, all this stuff. And he was really happy with the quality of life. And then he paused and he said, oh, by the way, I'm Gavin Newsom's father-in-law. So we do count Gavin's in-laws as some of the people that have fled California. Thoughts? Um, fascinating because it shows a distinctly different kind of smiling. But by, by the way, Newsom has a resting, smiling face. That's his resting face. So it comes very naturally to him. But you also saw his whole body respond as if he was having a good time with this. This doesn't bother me at all. You saw him go up as he was smiling and just kind of move much more smoothly rather than a stiff held body and then trying to smile where those two things don't match and align. So it feels funny to us to see. An unnatural style. Yeah. You know what's interesting is, is that you, what you've pointed out really is if people would just be themselves rather than try to be one way or the other, it, it works out better. Um, the, right. the moments that they have. Yeah. Authenticity. It affects your central nervous system when you're viewing it and you feel, I can trust this person, they're being real with me. Hmm. Good for TV anchors to keep in mind as well. Patty, thank you. It's good to see you. Newsom may be right, actually, that neither of them will be the nominee in 2024. That's what the polling says, at least. But two people, well, they could be the nominees. They could also be on the stage for another reason. Two women specifically, Kamala Harris and Nikki Haley, 
That's a debate we would all want to watch, right? Harris versus Haley, Democratic strategist Johanna Mosca, Princeton professor Lauren Wrights with us now. Ladies, good to see both of you. Um, I don't know. I'll start with you, Johanna. Um, you think Kamala Harris does better debating a male Republican mm-hmm. VP like she did Mike Pence or a female? That's a good question, Leland. I, I, I think that Kamala Harris has shown us at debates that she does have some punches, but they almost look scripted. So what we were just talking about on the authentic, uh, you know, whether they're authentic, I don't know that she'd be super authentic either way. She's come across a little forced, unfortunately, and she's actually a smart woman who could, you know, come across with more authority than she has. I will say Nikki Haley, however, on every debate stage has absolutely looked the part to be there knocking down all those men. And I wonder how she'd do if it was a woman. We did see that a little bit with Elizabeth Warren last time around with Harris on the debate stage. And you saw the two of them sometimes going at some of the guys. Mm. I don't know what it would be like if it was a one-on-one. Yeah, look, and we've seen her, right, with Christian Welker uh, in the NBC debate uh, uh, with a woman. That's a woman moderator. We'll see her with three women moderators, mm-hmm. the News Nation uh, debate. This is Haley on the attack. We'll play that and get Lauren's thoughts. Take a listen. This is really me running against Kamala Harris for president. That's who we're looking at. That should send a chill up everyone's spine. This has everything to do with Kamala's incompetence. All right, so this is, I think, a debate that Nikki Haley wants, Lauren. This would be the question, though. How does the dynamic change, right? Because I have, I have a sister and a mother who would tell me that the, the standards and the rules for women are very different. Uh, how does that play out? Well, they might be better behaved than a debate between two men on average. Maybe Johanna would agree with me on that. And I think you should pitch this idea. I think you should moderate it. Um, But I, I agree that Nikki Haley has been a really natural communicator on her feet, which is exactly what this is about. And, you know, there are accusations of sexism, racism that follow Kamala Harris wherever she goes. But the evidence suggests that she does not perform well in these settings. And people have seen a lot of her. She's given more public appearances than any vice president in recent history. She came into office with above a 60% popularity rating. And the evidence suggests that people have seen her perform and they're not impressed with what they see. That's a very fair assessment just based on observational data. Well, the data is here, right? Uh, Biden-Harris approval rating, Biden 38.2, Harris 35.9. That's very unusual. That's right. Yeah, yeah, very unusual that a vice president is lower than than the president. Johanna, I I almost saw you, um, I I I wouldn't say you dare endorse Nikki Haley, but you did seem to have a positive (laughs) feeling about, is, is that one of admiration or one of fear if she would be the nominee? It's interesting, Leland, you say that, because I was at our 15-year anniversary of all of our Obama people, and I said, you know, part of me is secretly rooting for Nikki Haley because she tells the truth on the debate stage. And many people said she will be harder to beat. I know that, but I'd rather have a fair debate 
with someone on issues who actually has come into this because she loves this country so much that she wants to continue to invest in it instead of someone who came from the background of being a TV show personality. Although I do think he needs to show up to this debate because I think she's gaining on him. And uh, it'll yeah. be interesting to see at our debate. It'd be very interesting to see if Trump shows up to this one. It'll be really interesting, uh, depending on how things shake out before Iowa, whether he feels the need to. Uh, Lauren, real quick to you, uh, where are we in terms of Nikki Haley either peaking too early, too late? Does the idea that she can hang with the guys, if you will, does that give her a little bit of armor, perhaps, um, in the coming debate versus if she was debating another woman in Kamala Harris? It does, but it also sets the expectations of her very high. And so if she doesn't have those zingers, if she's not as sharp, she will be criticized. And she's trying to hang on until South Carolina, but it's a very uphill battle for her. And we know people who tune in tend to be partisan. They tend to be better informed. But among those people, she can perhaps make an impression. Ladies, thank you very much. Boy, wouldn't it be fun? Harris, Haley, we're going to mark this tape. We were the ones who called it first. All right, and we're going to, we're going to take a victory lap when we come back and talk about it uh, a few months from now. Thank you both very much. Of course, News Nation home for the next Republican primary debate. Series XM's Megan Kelly. News Nation's own Elizabeth Vargas will moderate the two-hour event. Partnership with the Washington Free Beacon, Eliana Johnson there. The University of Alabama, Wednesday, December 6th. 8 p.m. Eastern, Chris Cuomo and I will bring you the pre-show starting at 6. You'll also see Lauren and Johanna as well. Coming up next, scenes like these have become a fixture of kids' social media feeds. We'll tell you how one school in the Midwest has banned cell phones. And boy, classes got cleaned up. So did the school bus. We'll tell you why next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Just this week in Raleigh, North Carolina, a fight broke out in high school. One student was killed, another badly wounded, when the fight quickly became a stabbing. As you can see, and it doesn't even surprise us anymore, there were kids filming and documenting it all, but doing nothing to stop it. All the kids were using their cell phones to film another student being murdered. It's a sign of the times, an age where views and likes are more important than anything else, more important than protecting your friend from being killed. In fact, cell phone use became such an issue in one Minnesota's middle school, they banned them altogether. Turns out the kids are happier. Patrick Smith is the principal of Maple Grove Middle School and joins us now. Uh, principal Smith, it's good to see you, sir. Thank you. Kids are happier. How do you how do you measure that and what does it mean? You know, it's, when I started uh, as principal here at Maple Grove Middle School, one of the biggest things that we were looking at is culture and climate. Because with a good, positive culture and climate, we believe that it has uh, an impact on students in so many ways. And so a couple of years ago, as we're kind of climbing out of a pandemic, we just noticed that the culture and climate was pretty negative. And a lot of it stemmed from what we felt was social media, drama, um, concerns, creating conflict. 
And so we knew we needed to do something because students were using their phones quite a bit during the school day. And so we had some good dialogue and decided to try something new and, and really enforce a, a cell phone policy that we already had in place, but needed more enforcement. So initially, was there pushback? What's happened sort of down the road here? Give us the results of this. You know, when we first started pushing this out, uh, my first philosophy was leave the phones at home. Don't even bring them. They don't need them. We've got phones in every classroom. We've got many communication or ways to communicate um, with your child uh, by calling the office. And so, but after a lot of dialogue with our parents, because we want buy-in. And the reason why this is working, because we have buy-in and support from our families and our staff. And so we do allow them to have phones on them, but they just cannot be seen from 810 to 240. And, and it's working. Wow. So 810 to 240, you said social media, and we said in the beginning that kids are so interested in likes and clicks. So rather than stepping in and stopping a fight or trying to prevent things, they're videotaping it. Have you noticed a difference in the sort of how kids are treating each other and the amount of bullying that's gone on? And is there a correlation, you think? I think there absolutely is. And we do see a huge, a huge difference in the way students are connecting with each other in the hallways, at lunchtime, um, even in the classrooms. <clears throat> But they, they're, they're smiling. They're happy. They're engaging with each other in the hallways. They're talking to each other face-to-face -face, uh, during lunchtime. Um, and just a short two years ago, they spent more time just looking down at their phones every moment that they could. And so it has become the culture of our building. And, again, the kids seem happy. So if it seems so obvious is what you're pointing out, I'm also guessing that test scores are going up and kids are doing better in school because they're not sitting there you know, on their phones all day checking TikTok while they're supposed to be in math class. Uh, if this is so obvious, it's working so well, why don't you think more schools are doing it? Why aren't they all calling you figuring out how to do this? Well, um, since we've been telling this story, there are more calling because I, there are a lot of schools out there that do have similar policies in place and are enforcing uh, no cell phone policies. Um, but it's, it's just truly about being able to manage it. Uh, you have so many students in, in places where they're not always um, seen, like in the hallways where there's thousands of students. How do you manage it and how do you really enforce it? Students are keeping so them how do away. You? you know, we have, it's, it's pretty much, it's 100%. We don't allow any flexibility. We don't allow any, for any reason, if we see the phone, we take it. Um, there's no questions asked. There's uh, no, oh, you know, next time, make sure you don't take it out. We take it right away. And when the students okay, so, so if a kid is, if a kid's doesn't matter where a kid is, if he's in class, if he's walking to class, if he's at lunch, whatever it is, if a teacher or an administrator sees a phone in a kid's hand, they take the phone. Correct. And and we and have for how long? Uh, until the end of the day, and then they get to pick it up if it's the first time that we took the phone away. The second time we take it away, we call home, notify the parent that this was the second time, and they do get it at the end of the day before they leave. The third time, and for the rest of the school year, uh, it is a parent pickup. Uh, we do not give it back to the student. Wow. Well, and then, and then parents begin enforcing it as well. Hey, this is great. Um, it's really refreshing to talk to a principal and to be able to do a story um, where it's working, where what's happening in school is working, because so many kids are being failed right now by by teachers, by administrators. It's really neat to see somebody who's willing to take a stand, who cares enough. Um, this is tough to enforce. As you said, it took buy-in, it took talking to people. Um, it's impressive. I know there's a lot of kids who many years from now are gonna be very grateful for your help, sir. Absolutely, anything we can do, and we are gonna see a difference in not only the social and emotional experience in our society, but, but academically and just their overall school experience. I bet so. It's good to see you. We need more principals like you. Thank you. Thank you. 
When Jesse Smollett staged his made-up racist and homophobic attack, nobody in America knew what COVID was. It was that long ago. He still never served his jail sentence. Why, that may now change. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jesse Smollett has lost an appeal of his conviction, and Illinois Appeals Court today upheld the actor's sentence and conviction. A jury found Smollett guilty of making up a story about being the victim of a racist anti-gay attack in downtown Chicago in 2019 and lying to police about it. Yeah, we all remember Jesse Smollett, the actor that staged that racist and homophobic attack. Well, he only served six days of a five-month jail sentence for making the whole thing up. He got out of jail on appeal and lost after the six days. The appeals court today ruled against him. Of course, Smollett refuses to take responsibility for his crime, says he will appeal to the Illinois Supreme Court to try and stay out of jail longer. Chris is here. This is what I can't figure out. Why is it that he was able to stay out of jail on appeal? That never happens. And certainly now that he lost the appeal, wouldn't anybody else have to go back to jail? Instead, he still gets to stay out. Oh, it happens. You know when it happens? Mm. You see that? (laughs) He has good lawyers, okay? I thought you were going to say when Gail King was on his side. (laughs) Well, look, (laughs) uh, you know, it's it's nice to have big shot friends. There's no question about that. But uh, in that system, the level of counsel, the sophistication of counsel, the relationships of counsel matters especially in a jurisdiction uh, where they are from. So you get some homegrown, real talent. Whoa, 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 whoa. Go ahead, Chris, uh, The system Chris, will have Chris, different Chris. outcomes. You're saying, you're, saying, you're saying that uh, there's a little grease in the system in Chicago? I'm not talking about graft. I'm talking about competency and contacts. Uh, one of the problems that we've had, and, and again, some people will see irony that this is a young black man and that they're very often disadvantaged by the system. True. But he is not a broke, anonymous young black man, okay? He had access to media and wound up getting very competent counsel. And as a result, they work the case well, and they're doing what they can to delay the inevitable, which is that this is going to stick. Yeah, well, look, at some some point, justice must be served, right? Um, It's Friday, 20 seconds. What's coming up on the show? I have the Green Prince back on the show uh, tonight. Yeah, the son of Hamas. Uh, man whose father is one of the biggest uh, members of Hamas. He has some very surprising things to say about what should be done with the leaders of Hamas and about why it is okay for Israel to have a two-tiered justice system where it's allowed to use administrative detention on thousands mm-hmm. of Palestinians without a trial, without arraignment, many of them minors, why he believes, as a Palestinian, it's needed. Interesting. Well, you've had him on a number of times. It's always been a great interview. I'm looking forward to it. Have a great weekend. Uh, Big week next week. We'll see you in Alabama. 
I can't wait to be there with you. Tuscaloosa, right. you got to wear your hound's roll, roll tide. It's a tradition. Roll, roll tide, baby. Coming up next, AOC in the squad's time. Hound's tooth. Come on. AOC in the squad's time in the spotlight may be coming to a close. Will pro-Israel money be enough to primary some controversial but wildly popular members of the pro-Hamas caucus? The October 7th massacre, 1,400 Israelis slaughtered by Hamas, women raped, babies beheaded, over 200 hostages taken to Gaza, ISIS-level savagery. And when Democrats and Republicans in Congress came together to denounce these barbaric acts of terror, Cori Bush refused to stand with Israel. Cori Bush is one of four squad members already facing well-funded 2024 primary challengers. Bush took the seat in 2020, beating out a 10-term incumbent, Lacey Clay. Next year, she'll go up against St. Louis County Prosecutor Wesley Bell. Bell dropped out of the U.S. Senate race to take on Bush over her stance on Israel. Summer Lee, Ilan Omar, Jamal Bowman will also have a fight to keep their seats in the upcoming primary. And big money awaits anyone willing to challenge pro-Hamas members of Congress. With us now, Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief for The Intercept, out with a new book on the squad. It comes out next week named The Squad. Um, Ryan, <laughs> help us understand here, because it seems as though this was sort of this uh, always out there on the, the periphery of issues with the squad as it relates to Israel. There was always mm-hmm. talk, obviously, Ilan Omar, um, Rashida Tlaib as well. And, and now, uh, October 7th, and then this has catapulted the Israel issue to the very forefront for A significant chunk of the book is, though, about this pushback, because if you followed them kind of day in and day out, you saw that In response to the swearing in of the first two Muslim women of Congress, there was a big money pro-Israel operation set up called Democratic Majority for Israel, specifically to counter them. And I I would uh, take issue, though, with the description of them as pro-Hamas. To me, Hamas feeds itself on injustice, on endless war, on occupation. The Likud party, which is run by Netanyahu, has Mm -hmm. publicly stated that their position is that they want to manage the conflict. They want an endless occupation that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu just the other day said, the reason I need to stay as prime minister is I'm the only one that can, pre- that can prevent yeah, no, right. I mean, I, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go back and forth with you on this. I would say that any, if, you're, if you're pushing for a ceasefire that even Hillary Clinton says only helps Hamas, then you're pro-Hamas. I'd say there was no, no even, occupation yeah. of, the Ga- of the Gaza Strip. We can go back and forth. I, I want to get the, though, to the book here. There's a blockade help, of it, though, yeah. yeah help us understand, though. How much of this is sincerely held belief? How much of this is the far left of the Democratic Party? So many people have been so surprised by this enormous upswell, and I'll use, I'll use your terminology, this enormous upswell for the Palestinian cause mm-hmm. um, at the expense of sometimes uh, of Israel's right to defend itself. Um, you saw that coming. Why? How? So in, in 2008, uh, right after uh, uh, President Obama was well, right, after, right after he was elected, but before he was sworn in, uh, Netanyahu used that moment to launch a major invasion of of the Gaza Strip, one of several that has happened over the last several decades. And in the wake of that, an organization was formed called J Street, which became kind of like a counter to APAC. It was kind of a pro-peace, yeah. pro-Israel uh, you know, organization that that finally created some space inside the Democratic Party to say, you know what, we support the right of Israel to exist, we support the right of Israel to de- defend itself, uh, but perhaps there shouldn't be two different uh, tiers of uh, justice for people who are 
under occupation by the Israelis. But perhaps there should be some conditions on aid attached so that uh, Israel isn't just car- you know, carpet bombing or indiscriminately bombing entire regions. You know, today, they, they announced that the southern region uh, needs to be evacuated. They've already evacuated yeah, and flattened we, we, the entire we covered, northern part we covered of Gaza. I, yeah. I, 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 I've spent a lot of time on the ground um, mm-hmm. covering this, uh, both uh, from both Gaza and from Israel. I've, I've never seen the Israelis carpet bomb, but... Um, Congratulations on the book. We're up against a hard break, but I want to have you back uh, next week to keep talking about this. It's important. Uh, And hopefully get you in studio. Congratulations on the book. You see it behind him, the squad uh, that now has a big part in uh, the future of the Democratic Party. Ryan, thank you. Chris Cuomo, 